everybody and thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the bible breakdown excited to get to talk about the story of stephen so we are going to be in Acts six and seven today not going to do a ton of reading because it's two chapters and chapter seven is pretty long it's got a lot going on but what i am going to do is do my best to summarize those two chapters so that we can get a good idea of what happened uh, stephen goes on for about 50 or so verses with the longest speech in the book of Acts. So I'm going to try to distill that so that we know what the main point he's trying to make, what we can take out of it, and then just kind of the situation, give the background on how the situation arose with Stephen in the first place. So we're going to start there and then uh, ending with some application. How can we apply what Stephen did, what he said? uh, How can we have a cautionary attitude based on the way that it was received as spoiler alert this story will end in Stephen dying for his faith so don't be too surprised when that happens Um, but he was the first Christian martyr so first Christian to die for his faith Um, and we will see that in this story and kind of what drove the religious leaders to do that so if you do want to follow along we're going to be in Acts 6 and chapter 7 And so the first thing that we see here in chapter six, just to kind of set the stage, why Stephen is important, why he's talked about how he entered the scene with the early church. Uh, Basically what happens in chapter six is there are um, some complaints from a group called the Hellenists. So Hellenists would be uh, people that were from primarily Greek speaking areas. So a lot of people would come from areas that were Greek speaking and relocate in Jerusalem, specifically Jews would do that for religious purposes. Um, But then this could also be people from Greek speaking nations that or areas that came for other reasons, but we're given uh, a group of, we're given this group called that they call the Hellenists. And there's basically this divide between the Hellenists and the Hebrews because the people who are from Jerusalem, from Judea would maybe view themselves as a little different, primarily probably linguistically, the Hellenistic uh, people in the church were probably Greek speaking primarily, whereas the Hebrews, um, while they might speak Greek, maybe are primarily Hebrew speaking. So uh, the Hellenists, they are noticing that in the daily distribution to the widows, that sometimes the Hebrew widows are kind of being given precedence and that their widows are being neglected in the daily distribution. So uh, the Disciples, the apostles, they get together and they say, okay, we can't have this. But at the same time, we can't be too focused on this this issue ourselves. We've got to commit ourselves to preaching the word of God and sharing the gospel. So they appoint some people that are going to help remedy this problem so that everybody's being served equally. And one of the people chosen is Stephen. That's right. And he's described as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Um, they probably recognized that in him when they chose him, though we have to remember that Luke, the writer of Acts, is not a stenographer. He is not writing things as they happen. Rather, he is uh, writing things that have already happened. So the reason that this is included as a description of Stephen, he may have been um, spectacular among these seven, but also the story we're about to see 
um, Stephen really comes out looking like a hero. So this may be a little bit of uh, editorializing here so we can kind of be primed to know that Stephen is going to be a special guy. Uh, but he and six others, they are um, kind of sent out as people to minister amongst the, the church. And um, we see from the next section, starting in verse 8, that these guys aren't just really good at passing out food equally. Uh, it says again, Stephen was full of grace and power in verse 8, and he was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Now, Stephen himself was probably also a Hellenist, um, probably from a Greek-speaking nation, um, but he wasn't just distributing food. It says that he was also doing great wonders and signs among the people, and that's typically how the apostles' work is described in Acts. So, we have to recognize that Stephen is a unique guy, um, full of the Holy Spirit, as uh, the earlier section indicates. And he is proclaiming the word as a, a part of, of his ministry that he has been dedicated to. Um, so there are some people who don't particularly appreciate Stephen's preaching, and these are some more Hellenists. So there's a lot of Hellenists in this chapter and there's a lot of issues with them, unfortunately. Uh, but these Hellenists, it says they are from a synagogue of the freedmen, and it, some of them were Cyrenians, Alexandrians, people from Cilicia and Asia. So those are areas all that um, were outside of Judea. So these are Hellenistic Jews, meaning they are fitting into that category that I mentioned earlier. They are, um, for religious purposes, most likely, these people moved to Jerusalem to more... Uh, fully carry out their their faith, their Jewish faith. It's very possible that they were dispersed sometime during um, the Greek Empire, or maybe even during certain times of the Roman Empire, uh, that they were kind of dispersed to these places and are coming back as part of their worship. So they hear him speaking, and they say, mm, we're not going to let this happen, because remember, the Jews are pretty much at this point 100% in opposition to Christianity and to what the Christians claim about Jesus. And so they come in, they kind of try to talk him down a little bit. Um, however, it says in verse 10, they couldn't withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So he was, he was overcoming them with his speaking about Jesus and they weren't able to challenge him is what it kind of seems like. So they get together some people that are going to lie about Stephen I guess a fairly common tactic when they ran into people that they weren't able to discredit, they would just tell people, Hey, could you lie about this guy for us? Um, which the irony of people that are really adhering to the law closely. And that's the reason they're not giving into the things that Stephen and the other apostles are saying um, is because they're so um, held on to the law where of, of course, 10 commandments don't bear, bear false witness. A lot of times even when that, even when we read that, we think of it as lying, but bear false witness really has a kind of judicial sort of tone to it. So having people lie about a testify about a person falsely, very much not in keeping with their law, but they do it anyway. And eventually Stephen finds himself before the Sanhedrin. So this is the same Jewish governing body that uh, Peter and John uh, stood before uh, back in chapter Four, when we talked about them proclaiming Jesus um, after they had healed um, a man who was born lame. And so this body kind of operates as not just a religious, but also a political governing power, um, all under the thumb of Rome. So Rome still has final say, but 
they delegated responsibility. They allowed them to handle matters um, of judicial and religious importance in Jerusalem. So this this body, the Sanhedrin, which is made up of um, scribes and uh, priests, the high priest is the one who kind of governs the body, um, had a lot of power. So we see again that some people sharing about Jesus are brought before the Sanhedrin in question. And so that's kind of the story that's set up for us here in chapter six. And as we move into chapter seven, Stephen uh, is questioned by the high priest and Stephen gives him more than he bargained for. He goes on for many, many verses with this really powerful speech. So um, Stephen is speaking to this body, the Sanhedrin, all pretty much Jewish. Um, so he's speaking a, a kind of for a Jewish audience that is rejecting Jesus, um, in, but not trying to reject the historical faith of Judaism, which of course is the background for Christianity or a continuation, really, you would probably say of Judaism is Christianity, um, more like all one faith. But at this point, of course, they do not believe that Jesus was the Christ, so they don't follow that. So Stephen kind of goes into this diatribe about why the Jews are wrong, basically. He just wants to tell them, uh, hey, I just would like to mention this to you, that this incident with Jesus and how you're responding is a little bit familiar. So starting with Abraham and going on all the way through, he really lands on on Moses. He kind of mentions David and Solomon at the end. But um, Stephen kind of does this history of the Jewish faith, starting with Abraham, the original patriarch, originally called by God. Um, and then he talks about Joseph. Um, and so the main kind of themes of this speech are two, and we'll kind of delve into how each of those play out. One is that God's people continually reject his messengers. The second one is a misunderstanding of the law and of the temple specifically. He's going to get into that. So those are kind of the two themes of Stephen's speech. So in all the 50 verses, that's basically what you can land on for what he's telling them. He's telling them, you are following in a long line of footsteps of people who reject messengers of God and you do not understand the law or the meaning of the temple, um, which the law and the temple would be kind of those centers of the Jewish faith at this point. Things that they would put a lot of faith and hope in is their ability to follow the law, their ability to uh, worship in the temple. Those are kind of things they're hanging their hats on. So he's going to kind of go at both of those. So starting with Abraham starts out fairly bland, um, but then he talks about Joseph. And so Joseph, as we know, he had a coat of many colors, and that's the only important thing that ever happened. No, Sunday school failed us all. That was like the least important thing that ever happened in Joseph's life was that coat of many colors. Don't get started. Don't get me started on the coat of many colors. But Joseph had a very influential and important life. And uh, one of the reasons he was sold into slavery by his own brothers was because they were jealous because of that coat. But after that, that's when the story of Joseph really begins. So um, the patriarchs... Um, as uh, Stephen's going to describe them in verse nine, referring to the sons of Israel, the sons of Jacob, they were jealous of Joseph and they sell him into Egypt, uh, into slavery in Egypt. So basically he's this person that um, they reject out of hand, but that God is going to use really powerfully. And so he uses this as an example to the Sanhedrin of, Hey, look, uh, as a nation, even our heroes weren't so good at deciding who the really important, really helpful 
people are, the messengers of God. And it goes through, he goes through just briefly to describe how Joseph made his way um, up the ladder in Egypt and was able then to um, help his father and his brothers um, by how he was able to uh, manage the grain in Egypt. And God came to him in some dreams and helped him with that and gave him favor in the eyes of Pharaoh. And so um, he uses that as an example of, hey, here's one example. Remember what happened to Joseph? That was kind of our bad in terms of uh, Jews rejecting God's messenger. And then he parlays that into a discussion of Moses. Now he's going to talk about Moses uh, longer than any of the rest. And he's actually going to talk about two times when the people reject Moses. So you may remember that in Moses' life, at one point he sees an Egyptian beating a, a, a Hebrew and he kills the, he kills the Egyptian who's doing that. And then he later returns to see two Hebrews fighting. He tries to break them up and they are like, what are you going to do? Kill us like you killed the Egyptian. And he runs off into the wilderness. And that's actually where we next pick up on Moses. He's gone a long time in the wilderness after that. Um, Stephen says here 40 years that he spent in the wilderness, but basically Moses kind of comes to the aid of these of the Hebrews that are in slavery um, in Egypt, but they tell him, what, are you just going to kill us like you killed the Egyptians? So he uses that as an example of, again, the nation kind of rejecting a messenger from God. So then he goes forward to when Moses comes again after the burning bush where um, God calls him to go and free uh, the Jews from Egypt. And then when Moses up on Mount Sinai, uh, he's getting the law from God on the tablets and the people get really impatient. And what do they do? They get tired of waiting for Moses. They reject him. They say, Aaron, make us a golden calf so we can have some God to lead us. So they end up worshiping this golden calf and Moses comes down very angry. And it's another incident in which the Israelites reject a messenger from God. Now, he's really just scratching the surface here. I mean, you could go through all the prophets. You could go um, through a long line of Israel's history of people rejecting uh, messengers from God. But he basically lands there. Um, it's also entirely possible, given the nature of how his speech ends, which is a, a mob basically attacking him, that he had more to get through but didn't quite get there. Um, but... He basically gives them these examples, these major, major figures in Judaism that the people saw and rejected um, as messengers from God in certain instances. And so then he, after he kind of discusses that, he takes a brief discussion about the temple and what he says basically about the temple is that he talks about the tabernacle. So the tabernacle was this like mobile temple that they used for a long time while they were in the wilderness and that the rules for that were given um, to Moses in the law. And they that was kind of uh, God's dwelling place um, for their worship purposes. And then he eventually, uh, Solomon builds a temple. And so that's the temple that, um, it's not the original Solomon temple that they are, that they're in, but that's what they recognize the temple that they worship in, in Jerusalem as originally being. Um, even to this day, uh, devout Jews will not uh, enter the Temple Mount in Israel because they worry they might step where the Holy of Holies used to be. So it's a very, um, very sacred place in the faith. And so these uh, 
these leaders, these religious leaders in the Sanhedrin, they hold their, the temple as not just a great place to gather, but as a sacred place. And so what, uh, what Stephen challenges them on with their adherence to the temple as a really special place is he quotes to them a, a psalm, Psalm 11, and he says the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands. And the quote is, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? So basically he discusses how the the temple is great, um, but that ultimately God's dwelling place is greater than the temple. He can't be contained in the temple. And then he's going to say something that's going to make them really, really, really mad. And what he says to them is starts in verse 51, and I'll read this. It says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so did you. And here's kind of his summary statement for what he's been talking about. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So he gives a nice little summary statement for us here. Um, you and your fathers all reject the prophets that God sends, and it is culminated in you betraying and murdering the righteous one, the Messiah, Jesus. And then the real zinger there, 53, they could honestly, they probably would have been fine with that first part, but he says, you received the law and did not keep it. Now, if you're talking to the Sanhedrin and you tell them they don't keep the law, that is, that is no good. That is basically what they spent their time doing is trying to follow the law. And one of the things that Jesus is going to criticize the Pharisees for is um, they set up man-made laws to basically kind of build a fence around the a law. So they built a fence around the law, meaning they kind of expanded the boundaries of the law to be more strict so that there was no chance of them breaking the law. Because after the exile, um, when they returned to the land, a lot of the religious leaders basically said, this is not going to happen again. We are not getting kicked out again. Um, we're going to obey the law so that we can stay in our spot. So they create these man-made laws. And that's one of the things that uh, Jesus is going to criticize the Pharisees for is creating these man-made laws that put a heavy burden on the people. So when you tell these people who have set up this fence around the law that they are not keeping the law, um, that's pretty much the final straw. Again, I really think if he hadn't said that, Stephen may have lived many more years. Um, I think they're actually kind of like, yeah, persecuting Jesus, betraying him, murdering him. We're okay with that. But don't you dare say we didn't keep the law. So what happens then is people get enraged. Um, they come at him. Um, Stephen uh, also says, I, I see that Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. Um, and they're very upset. They throw him out of the city and they end up stoning him, killing him. And it says that as Stephen died, in verse 60, it says, And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Um, which is... Reminds us of when uh, when Jesus is dying on the cross that he tells, says, forgive them, Father, if they know not what they do. Um, we see that um, grace, that humility there in the end of Stephen's life as well. So Stephen gives, gives a speech. He condemns them for rejecting God's messengers. 
for putting too much emphasis on the temple and on the law and not enough on the will of God. Ultimately, they are enraged to the point where they're willing to stone Stephen. So Stephen there then becomes the first Christian martyr, the first Christian to die for his faith. So that's pretty much the story. Um, you can read all the specifics and it's a, I mean, it's, it's really a lot of information, but really I think gives a great picture of just what it looks like for God's people to, to listen to him, a kind of a cautionary tale. And I think that's kind of where I want to land today as we discuss how could we apply this passage? What does this passage have to do with us? Um, the reality is that Stephen is talking to religious leaders here and he's telling about the history that God's people have of not listening to him. And we have to admit that even though uh, we, we have listened hopefully um, to what, how God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ, how we recognize him as the Messiah, as our savior, um, that there are still times when God is calling us to things, that God is asking something of us, that he is wanting us to obey him in certain ways that we can be really stiff-necked, just like Stephen accuses the religious leaders of being. And so we get here two kind of opposing examples, two, um, two examples that give very different responses to the call of God in Stephen and the Jews. So uh, God calls Stephen to faithfully minister, faithfully preach the word. Um, he is using, God is using Stephen to uh, do signs and wonders. And then he calls Stephen to, uh, to ultimately preach against these religious leaders and he obeys even unto death. So God called Stephen to something really hard. He was full of the spirit. Not only did he do it well, he did it with joy. Um, and he did it with grace and humility in his heart. We see that at the end. Yes, for their forgiveness as they're stoning him. That's uh, that's a piece that surpasses understanding. And then we see God calling these religious leaders something difficult. He's calling them to uh, give up the man-made traditions, um, the man-made expectations that they had set, and to believe in Jesus, who was not who they expected. Um, let's think about it this way. Um the Jews were expecting a Messiah that was very different than Jesus. They were expecting a political leader. Um, they were expecting someone to liberate them from the Romans. And now it turns out that the guy that said he was that person and you were expecting that person to do things your way, instead, he uh, dines with sinners. Um, he condemns the religious leaders of the time instead of saying they're doing everything right. And then he's ultimately going to die on a cross, on a Roman cross. And in Galatians 3, Paul is going to kind of expand on this idea um, that Jesus became a curse for us because as it, he says, as it's written, cursed is anyone who dies on a tree. Um, and that's calling back to Deuteronomy 21, um, where... It says anyone who's hanged on a tree is cursed by God. So now you're the person that is claiming to be the Messiah you've been waiting for has now been hung on a tree, which means that he is cursed. So now 
Can you imagine that that's difficult to accept? I can imagine. I can imagine that's difficult for them to accept. They don't, again, they can't say, well, what did Paul say about this in Galatians? Oh, I see. You know, they don't have the the resources, the teachings um, that we have, though we got to be honest, too, that the apostles did their best uh, to try to point them the right direction. So God was calling the Jews to something hard to abandon the, the way you've been living, the way you've been expecting and follow in faith that this Jesus is the son of God and that he is the one you've been waiting for. So there's two examples. We see Stephen. Um, he he follows wholeheartedly and it ends in his death. The Jews um, reject Jesus and it results in their condemnation. They choose what's comfortable, normal, what's expected, um, and it's ultimately to their demise. And so now let's make it a little bit personal. Are we the type of people, am I the type of person that is listening to what God is calling me to, or am I the type of person that is looking to what God is calling me to in the ways that I expect? Or am I the kind of person that is rejecting uh, things that don't quite fit my mold of what I think God's going to ask me to do? Or am I willing to go outside of what I expect to really try to listen to the word of the Lord? Um, Some examples um, in our finances, are we willing to listen to what God's asking us to do with our finances that we would be willing to give generously, that we'd be willing to use our money in ways that, um, are kind of out there, are kind of surprising uh, because God's calling it, us to that instead of the, I'm going to buy this house so I can move to the bigger house and then the bigger house until I've eventually got the biggest house. Um, it's, is he calling us to something different in the midst of, of that, to, to call us out to spend our money differently, to show our priorities are different as a testimony to who God is? Um, in our careers, are we willing to take leaps of faith where we feel like God is maybe calling us to a, a career change or something career-wise that um, is backwards, doesn't seem to be the the right thing in terms of how society would do it? Is it my career, the new career that God's calling me to, is it a lower paying job? Could, could that possibly be um, something worth doing? Absolutely. Um, is God calling us to maybe do something radical like uh, moving locations, whether that be, uh, hey, I'm going to move from Fort Worth to Waco because X, Y, Z, whatever God might be calling to, or even more drastic, is God calling me to move to a different country so that I can serve him in a different country and tell more people about the gospel? Is God calling me to give up everything that I've cultivated for myself here so that I could serve him with everything I have somewhere else? Um, maybe in, in evangelism, is God calling me to take a bold step to share who he is with somebody where there's a lot of risk to it? Maybe not physical risk, but relational risk, um, fear of being rejected, fear of being considered weird and outcast. Is God calling me to take a bold step in that, even though it's not maybe the mold I have for my own evangelism? Or even thinking about um, social issues, is God calling me to get involved in something that um, makes me uncomfortable um, socially, whether that be um, in racial reconciliation, uh, issues of slavery that still exist today, um, issues of poverty, whatever it may be. Is, is God calling us to be involved in um, caring for people physically and societally uh, in addition to spiritually in ways that maybe I wouldn't expect? And really, I 
offer up these examples, not because I think that God is calling us to all of them at all times to make radical, um, absolutely life altering decisions. But I would just hate to, for us to be in a place where we've got God cornered and we know, we know what he's going to ask us. We don't, there's no surprises. Um, but that hopefully we can be a people that walk into every day, into every situation, into every big decision with open hands and say, I want to follow where the good shepherd's going to lead me. I don't want to be comfortable above all. I want to be obedient above all. And how often are we making space in our daily lives to, to hear what God would have for us? Uh, Stephen clearly was, was doing that. Stephen was clearly listening to where the Holy Spirit was prompting him. The Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, the people that were considered the most holy at the time, the church goers of their day, um, they weren't listening. They weren't making that time. They thought they had it all figured out. So as we read this story, I think it's a, a we get a great example in Stephen of what it looks like to step out in boldness and courage and to proclaim the Lord boldly. But we also get a cautionary tale in what it looks like to be closed off to what God would have for us. So as we as we read this story, as we teach this story, as we meditate on the story, um, let's just create opportunities for God to, to, I guess, let's create opportunities to listen to God. Let's create opportunities to be open to what God would have us do. So I hope this was helpful. Hope the, the story seems a little less intimidating, long as it is, and um, hope ultimately that this will be an opportunity for all of us, myself included, um, just to be listening to what God is calling us to do.